Hello, this is Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of ADC. Welcome to the May Atoms. We'll start by talking about milestones. Like many words with an implicit sense of drama, milestones has become something of an overused term. A millstone, if you will. There are occasions, though, when it is fully justified. And by chance, this month features events and contains papers to which the epithet can be rightfully applied. I therefore make no apology in risking cliché on this occasion. In 1981, the WHO and UNICEF launched the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes, guidance aimed to ban advertising these products to the public. It stipulated that all milks that may replace breast milk in the first three years of life, including infant formula, follow-on formula, specialist products and milks marketed for toddlers, as well as foods marketed for children under six months old, be known as substitutes. The anticipated changes were never fully adopted. Though the UK restricts marketing of infant formula to the general public, it allows advertising of specialist products to be marketed to health professionals, providing the information is scientific and factual in the view of the advertiser. After lengthy and courageous discussions between the BMJ and Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, a decision has been reached that this arrangement was in conflict with breastfeeding promotion. As a result, the BMJ, ADC, related journals and the RCPCH will no longer carry adverts for any sort of formula or accept payments for the companies. This will be expensive as major losses to funding are inevitable. Existing contracts will be honoured, but the final adverts will appear later this year. In 2011, the New England Journal of Medicine published the landmark FEAST study. The trial challenged existing dogma in terms of fluid bolus volumes in febrile children in sub-Saharan Africa with incipient shock. Children were randomised to an initial bolus of either saline or albumin or to no bolus. To generalise surprise, discomfort and consternation, the results robustly demonstrated excess mortality in the bolus groups across all categories of underlying diagnosis. Later secondary analyses suggested that the excess deaths were largely due to cardiogenic shock, though the pathological pathways were unclear. Unsurprisingly, there was a resistance in other settings partly due to potential non-generalizability, and for some years the question remained tantalisingly unanswered. Eventually, to the immense credit of the UK NIHR, a pilot, Phase 2 study, Fluids in Septic Shock, or FISH for short, was launched. This multi-centre pilot tested the feasibility of a potential future full-scale trial on randomising children to low or standard volume boluses, after an initial 20 mils per kilo resuscitation load. The findings were salutary on two levels. Firstly, adherence to the protocol was low, reflecting innate medical resistance to change. Secondly, the numbers of eligible children were much lower than expected. The latter is probably a reflection of the success of the vaccination programme, particularly with respect to pneumococcal, meningococcal and haemophilus programmes. So where does this now leave us? Well, Inwell's paper and the editorial by Kath Maitland, principal investigator of the fee study, provides more detail.
No one could be unaware or immune to the tensions generated by any of the recent high-profile media cases in which paediatricians and parents fundamentally disagreed and in which recourse to the courts was required. Mike Linney's piece for the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health and Paediatric Intensive Care Society was catalyzed by these cases and suggests means of reaching a consensus in decision-making in life-limiting illness. The guidance is underpinned by the need for communication and includes the following tenets. Avoidance of giving parents inappropriate expectations, early use of palliative care teams, the recognition of parental and practitioner stress, the assignation of a lead consultant, and the use of ethical, legal services and mediation services. To do justice to the effects, both direct and indirect, of climate change to children, which range, of course, from physical harm to infectious disease risk to nutritional risk to economic underproductivity, would take several volumes. Despite the magnitude of the task, there are simple, practical and philosophical measures that we can incorporate into our daily lives as paediatricians, which at scale will make a difference. Sophie Butter's editorial explains how you might adopt these. From the outset, I was determined that children's views and thoughts, literal and metaphorical, would be afforded a place in the journal. This was one of the principles on which the Voices section was based. Other than Voices from Children, there are three spokes, History, Controversies and Literature, all of which are now running. This month sees the first of the children's and young person's voices. These are written by the young person or parent, they're peer-reviewed, but in the spirit of maintaining the authenticity of the original experience. All are anonymous to maintain confidentiality unless a child has died or is aged over 18 and given autonomous consent. The first and eponymous piece, All About George, appears in this issue. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the website for more on adc.bmj.com. I'll see you next time.